a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast where we discuss international politics, which sounds very dry when you say it like that, but it's just not because this man is our commentator, Dr. Keith Souter. Uh, every week we choose something that's going on in the world and we, we break it down for you, something of interest and someone who is very well versed on this, you, Dr. Keith, you know, you're really good at making this information very easy to understand for people like me, for example. So thank you for that. And you've also got a couple of doctorates on international politics. And the second one was in the in the uh, economics of war, yeah. which is very interesting. And it's very poignant, particularly for this podcast today. Yeah. So this is a report by Netta Crawford, who's at Boston University. It's published by the Watson Institute of Brown University. And it's uh, on the costs of war program and deals with the fuel use by the Pentagon and climate change. Now, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, is the world's largest institutional user of oil and the largest single producer of greenhouse gases in the world. What? It's an incredible statistic. How? <laughs> How? And it, and it goes under the radar screen because I don't think that some of these figures appear in calculations relating to climate change. You just don't talk about national defence. No. So we spend a lot of our time talking about people who are driving automobiles, etc. But this report by Professor Crawford is absolutely brilliant in looking at the fact that the United States spends more on the military than any other country in the world. It certainly spends more than... Uh, I think about a dozen of its rivals, including Russia and China, combined. So it's $700 billion which gets spent. And an important component of all of this is the whole issue of oil. Energy is the lifeblood of our warfighting capabilities, as one uh, general said. So this is a report that goes into incredible detail looking at the um, whole issue of the U.S. consumption, the U.S. military consumption of of oil or petrol, gas, whatever you want to call it. What is interesting is that on the one hand, the Pentagon is this massive consumer. As I say, it's the largest single producer of greenhouse gases in the world, uh, which a lot of people are unaware of. But what is also interesting is the Pentagon takes seriously the worry of climate change. So remember, the United States has just had four years of a president who denied that there was a problem with climate change. That is not the view of the, of the Pentagon. So the Pentagon has consistently argued there is a problem with climate change. So one of the examples of this is the whole question of having to fortify their bases. So um, Norfolk, Virginia, which is the largest naval facility in the world, Virginia, they are able to measure the rise of sea level. And if a really severe storm is coming in, they have to get all their boats out to sea. They can't afford to have the boats caught up in that giant natural harbour because they'll be bouncing up against each other, etc. So if a storm's coming through, they all have to disappear, go out, get, scatter them onto the high seas. So what, what I found fascinating, therefore, is that the Pentagon realises that it has a problem. It has um, 
problem at, at Norfolk, Virginia, with rising sea level. It also has bases that get flooded when you have an influx of heavy rains. So the Pentagon has almost this two-sided approach to climate change. It's one of the major contributors, well, it is the single most important contributor to climate change as an institution. And yet at the same time, it stands apart from the US government in warning about climate change. Now that we've got a new president in the White House who is far more aware of the danger of climate change, we will have less controversy. So this report argues that reductions in military fossil fuel use would be beneficial in four ways. First, that the United States would reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. And remember, these emissions are not necessarily included in the official statistics that the Americans produce under their obligations on climate change. Secondly, it would reduce fuel consumption and would make money available. If you reduce the fuel consumption, you'll be saving money, and therefore you could actually spend more money on security issues. It also means that you'll have money available uh, because you're, you're not being in such vulnerable situations. A third issue is that you reduce the American dependence on the oil-rich states that the United States has to um, maintain its links with. And finally, of course, that if you spend less money on defence, you might be able to spend it on more peaceful activities. One of the issues that's worth bearing in mind is that in 1945, when World War II was ending, one of the last activities of uh, President Franklin Roosevelt was to, uh, on his way back from Europe, back to the United States, he actually went via the Bitter Lake, which is in uh, around the Suez Canal, and he met with the leaders of the of Saudi Arabia. Now, this is a meeting. It wasn't secret, but it's not well publicised, but it represented change in American policy. So previously, the United States had very little role in the Middle East. It left, well, originally, of course, it was, well, in more recent times, it was controlled by the Ottomans, the Turks, right? Um, so Americans might go there as Christian tourists, but not a big deal. Then after World War I, the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire is broken up and Britain and France, who are then the two great powers, move in and take control of that area. In World War II, the Americans decided, given the, the importance of energy for the military effort, so it was brought home to them very dramatically that they needed access to oil, the Americans decided they would now muscle in on this area, which traditionally was controlled by Britain and France. And so Roosevelt had this meeting with the leader of Saudi Arabia. As I say, it wasn't a secret meeting, but it was never well publicised. I give talks to oil conferences, and a lot of oil people are unaware of this meeting back in 1945. But it was the beginning of this arrangement whereby the United States promised to protect Saudi Arabia, providing Saudi Arabia supplied oil to the United States. That was the quid pro quo. And that saw America being drawn in um, as a pro-Arab state. Now, of course, three years later, we get the creation of the state of Israel, and suddenly the United States is seen also as a defender of the state of Israel. But it has also got an even longer, by three years, contact with the Arab world through Saudi Arabia. 
And so America is a major player. So the Americans gradually push the British and the French out. Uh, they still maintain a presence. But it's the Americans who like to dominate the Middle East of the Western countries rather than the British and the French. Very interesting piece of politicking. So the Americans betrayed the British and the French, squeezed them out. <laughs> All is fair in love and war and oil politics. So the Americans get rid of the British and the French and then take over the prior position, this uh, superior position of taking the, the oil out of the middle or buying the oil from the Middle East. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We are talking about, well, quite a few issues today, Dr. Keith. And by the way, you've got a doctorate on these issues, so you're very well versed in them. <laughs> Thank you. And as the cost of war, the economics of war, of which there are a few fronts facing the US at the moment <laughs> and the world in general, but yeah. climate change being a very big, big one. Absolutely. So what we're looking at here, this is a report by uh, Professor Netta Crawford at Boston University. The report was published by Brown University, the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. And so it's Pentagon fuel use, climate change and the costs of war. So in this report, she argues that, in fact, the Americans would be better off by devoting less energy, so to speak, to acquiring energy uh, from fossil fuel and, of course, reducing the American military involvement. So what she's talking about, therefore, is that there should be an aiming for a reduction in overall military emissions from installation and non-war operations, also to reduce the war-related work done by the US military in their overseas emergency operations, and also to try to reduce the equipping of the military for because that also consumes energy. In other words, you just simply building aircraft or deploying the aircraft also consumes energy. So what she is saying is that the planet would be better off if there were a lower level of military expenditure, as well as, of course, having more money available to finance other projects and also keep America out of uh, some of the areas in which they've been involved, particularly the Middle Eastern politics. My view is that the Middle Eastern countries should be left to get on with their own affairs. I'm not sure there's much to be gained by America getting drawn into this. President Trump, to his credit, did not get further involved in new wars in the Middle East, but he had great difficulty getting out of the existing ones. So he left office with American troops still, for example, in Afghanistan. Uh, he was promising to bring them home, but was unable to do so. So if we saw a realignment of the United States whereby it decides that it's going to put climate change as a priority topic. You then ask the question, how can we therefore help to protect the environment? And one of the ways you do that is by scaling back the sheer size of the Pentagon. Now, the, the Pentagon is a great example of socialism. It's the world's biggest example of socialism because what they have done since the creation of the military-industrial complex is to spread military contracts around the United States. It's worth bearing in mind that in 1940, the army of Greece was larger than the, the American army. So up until 1941, which is Pearl Harbor, the Americans never had a large standing army. 
because they remembered when they had a large standing army, it was under King George III who used it to keep control of his 13 American colonies. So the Americans uh, decided they would not have a large standing army and they would give people the right to bear arms. So in other words, it'd be foolish trying to invade the United States because you've got everybody with a gun in their home, right? And so in 1940, at the outset of World War II for the European countries, the army of Greece was larger than the army of the United States. And then from Pearl Harbor onwards, that's December 7, 1941, until 1945, we get the mass mobilisation of American industry. We, we, We talk a great deal about the Chinese eliminating poverty for 400 million people. That four years of American history is equally miraculous. So one Ford factory, for example, produced more output each year for those four years than the whole of Italy. One factory. So this is the industrial muscle of the United States. This, of course, is the tragedy of the COVID crisis when the Americans can't get the the COVID crisis under, uh, you know, control it. When you think back to what it was like between 1941 and 1945, 1945, we get the end of World War II. We get a reduction of military expenditure. But a lot of uh, companies had decided, look, we do very well out of all of this expenditure. We don't want to surrender ourselves entirely. We don't want to go back to where we were before 1940 because this is a great way to make money. You know, government contracts, um, usually very easy to get the good contracts, etc. It's a cost plus arrangement. So if your price goes up, not to worry, you just add a little more to it, the little more, the government's always going to pay. And so it's interesting that in 1961, with the outgoing president, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, warned about a military industrial complex. He had seen this transformation in 20 years of the United States from having a very small army to then actually, in 19, you know, by, 19, by his time as president, having this massive military industrial complex. And so his recommendation, therefore, was that the Americans find ways of reducing that high level of military expenditure. That recommendation was ignored. <laughs> the problem, of course, for the Americans, or an advantage, depending on your point of view, is that if you've got a large military expenditure, you have to keep justifying it. And to justify it, you need an enemy. And the Soviet Union gave them that enemy from 1945 until 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. And so the Americans then, under President Clinton, were presented with a world in which the United States was number one and had no obvious major rival. That was bad news for the (laughs) military-industrial complex. How can they continue to justify a high level of military expenditure when there are really very few enemies in the world? And then, of course, in the year 2001, uh, President Bush's first year in office, you get 9-11. Suddenly they can invent this war on terror. So you then get a lot of money being spent on terrorism-related issues. And so the Americans are pouring money into this realignment of their defence priorities while the Chinese are going around the Americans and just built re constructing the global economy with China at the centre. One of the ways of they're doing that is what's called the Belt and Road Initiative. And so China, therefore, is really the emerging great power rival, but it's not necessarily doing it 
in a head-on military fashion. Now, the Americans keep worrying now about China as the big rival, but it's not in military terms. The United States spends far more money than China does. But what China is very smartly doing is winning friends and influencing people by going around the world with all of its money and reshaping the global economy. And I think that the value of this report is simply to say, look, uh, we've got this whole issue of the high level of consumption of oil by the Pentagon. If you're worried about climate change, you really ought to be worried about military expenditure. And you really ought to be campaigning for the Americans to reduce their high level of military expenditure, which means, therefore, taking on the military-industrial complex. There's a very good report. It's a very big document. goes into all the details about consumption and all the figures. They're all there. But as I say, the most amazing f- fact for me is right there on the first page. The U.S. Pentagon, Department of Defense, is the world's la- largest institutional user of petroleum and correspondingly the single largest producer of greenhouse gases in the world. If you're worried about climate change, you've got to get worried about this Pentagon fuel usage. And America does not doing the right thing and get it into their heads. It is an issue. It, and these guys claim it's an issue, and yet they're the ones. And they're the ones, yeah. Trying to point the finger at China probably. <laughs> well, they do. They blame mm-hmm. China, yeah. So what's the resolution here? Is it just America coming to their senses? Um, the resolution, I guess, would be that, um, you know, people like Professor Nita Crawf- Netta Crawford has identified the problem. And I think for the peace movement and the environment movement, they've got to come together. They've got to join forces and campaign together because climate change is obviously affected by Pentagon fuel usage or military industrial complex generally, not just America, but also what China and R- Russia, et cetera, are doing. So you've got to find ways of building bridges between these various campaigning movements. We need Greta Thunberg on this issue. (laughs) Fingers crossed. This has been Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.